listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the NeuroFarm on our first inaugural podcast. I am your host, Dr. Colby Burns, and I am joined by Dr. Christopher Tony, my co-host. Both of us are doctors of pharmacy, and we are dedicated to providing you with the latest and greatest evidence on mental health-related topics to help you live your best life. There are 4 million podcasts in the U.S., but we are certainly glad you're choosing to listen to this one. And I hope we can offer you some takeaways today and make it worth your time and provide some entertainment value too. First of all, let's talk about the mission for this podcast. This podcast will be focused on mental health. As a pharmacist, the public probably thinks our job to promote good mental health is to stand behind the counter and hand out medications and provide a little information to patients on side effect and directions. I know if I could make a graph about what society thinks I do, what my mom thinks I do, um, and my family thinks I do, they probably just picture the same image of me standing behind a counter and filling medication and wondering, people stand out there wondering why it's taken so long. We do hear that a lot. Um, and I guess there's some truth to that a little bit, but mental health is of course about so much more than medication. And as pharmacists, we are able to do a lot more than just hand out medications or provide counseling. We are the clinical experts when it comes to treatment algorithms, determining what drug is gonna work best for patients, understanding interactions of pharmacogenomics. And we know the standard of care. Example, when someone comes in for depression or anxiety to their doctor, generally the first line therapy the doctor provides is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or SSRI. Two of the top 50 prescribed meds in the US, fluoxetine and sertraline are SSRIs, and four out of the top 200 medications prescribed in the US are SSRIs. Some other good stats to know about mental health. Over 20% of Americans have a diagnosed mental health disorder, while 5.5% experience serious mental health disorders, and 16.5% of youth experience mental health disorders based on 2021 data. Mood disorders and psychosis account for 600,000 hospitalizations every year and rank as the number one non-pregnancy-related cause of hospitalization for youth under 18. We know as well there's an economic cost to society Mental health disorders cost $193 billion to the U.S. economy and lost earnings every year, and $1 trillion in lost productivity globally every year. Depression is also the leading cause of disability globally, as those with untreated depression are at a 40% higher lifetime risk of developing cardiovascular and metabolic diseases compared to the general population. In terms of how are we doing in treating the mental health crisis, it is almost more of a coin flip these days. 50% of patients don't benefit from current therapies, according to research published by psychiatrist Dr. Peter Silverstone in his book, The Promise of Psychedelics. There are questions being raised now on whether the serotonin theory of depression is valid, and we'll get to that in a later episode. But we know there's a lot of stigma around mental health that prevents people from seeking treatment. And even among those who do seek treatment, a lot of them aren't objectively getting much better. The point of this introduction is not to attack the psychiatric profession or mental health professionals and clinicians. They're highly trained to get at their jobs. I've worked in behavioral health. I've worked for MAs and nurses and doctors that work in these clinics. They care a lot about the patients and they go a long ways to helping them. Um, but the point I really want to make is that mental health is complex and multifaceted. Mindfulness, spirituality, exercise, nutrition, supplementation of vitamins and minerals, and psychedelic-assisted therapy or plant-based medicine 
should all be considered key factors in a holistic approach to mental health, and we want to talk about these topics and the latest research in the coming episodes. In addition to standard pharmacotherapies such as SSRIs or antipsychotics or medications that people may be more familiar with that are listening to this podcast. The mindset should be that mental health is kind of the summary of all these individual parts. It, it's holistic. It's not about just one individual component, and that's what makes it challenging to treat. These are really broad, ambitious goals I've laid out, and we've been planning this podcast for a while, and it's hard to know where to get started. Thinking like an entrepreneur and trying to solve problems, we think about healthcare as a whole, and there, there's so many problems with our healthcare system. I could point to a lot of other metrics. Uh, don't want to spend too much time in the introduction, but our healthcare system does have so many problems, and our mental health care has so many problems. It's hard to know where to get started when you really want to sit down and think about solving and attacking these problems. The first place that we're going to start out with today, though, is by talking about MDMA or 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, which is the chemical name for MDMA. Uh, I'm not going to repeat that again because it is a real mouthful. We'll just call it MDMA from now on. This was labeled as the gold standard psychedelic, according to Dr. Peter Silverstone, again in the book Promise of Psychedelics. MDMA was developed by Merck in 1912. It originally made as a method to control bleeding, although it's often incorrectly stated that it was developed as an appetite suppressant. That is not true. But it never really took off for anything for many years. It wasn't until the 1970s that it started to gain a falling among psychiatrists as they believed it enhanced communication in patient settings and allowed patients to achieve insight about their problems. However, MDMA became caught up in the war on drugs in 1984. Ecstasy, which is a street drug that actually contains MDMA, but is normally cut with impurities such as ketamine, dextromethorphan, cocaine, and bath salts, started to become part of the rave scene at clubs. And the DEA really cracked down on this and moved swiftly to make an emergency decision to place it in the Schedule One category, meaning that it has no recognized therapeutic use, according to the DEA. This is, again... Uh, Going back to the MDMA is only one component of ecstasy. So despite that fact, MDMA became associated with ecstasy, and it was banned in the U.S. and in Europe for about 20 years. But patients have continued to seek it out for treatment-related reasons. So, Colby, why do you think people are willing to break the law to use psychedelics? The penalties for breaking the law include felonies and up to life in prison. It's a good question, Chris. Uh, thanks for asking that. The PTSD in particular, which we're going to talk about, there's not a lot of good treatment options for PTSD. Um, SSRIs, the drugs we mentioned earlier in the podcast, are kind of the standard treatment according to clinical guidelines, but a lot of people don't benefit from SSRIs, and they don't address the root cause of the patient's illness, this pathologic response to fear that's uh, of a tra traumatic episode that is why PTSD occurs in the first place. So there is a need for better therapies for PTSD, and that has got the attention of MDMA and why people want to turn to MDMA to get help for those reasons. And the dream of making MDMA legalized has been kept alive all these years by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, MAPS was started in 1986, by Dr. Rick Doblin, one year after MDMA was banned in the U.S. And it's had its mission to get MDMA back into clinical practice ever since. It's getting real close. Um, 
What can you tell us, Chris, in fact, about the clinical research so far on MDMA for PTSD? The first big breakthrough on the use of MDMA for PTSD came from a MAP-sponsored study published in 2010. In the study, 20, per 20 participants with treatment-resistant PTSD, which was defined as patients who are symptomatic after six months of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy uh, with an SSRI at the maximum tolerated dosage, they received two or three courses of MDMA compared with a placebo in addition to psychotherapy. The dosages of MDMA were 125 milligrams, followed by a booster dose of 62.5 milligrams two hours later. The results show uh, that there was an astounding 83% of patients that achieved complete remission at two and 12 month follow-ups compared to 25% of patients in the placebo group. Long-term follow-up of the cohort showed remission was sustained for six years without any subsequent doses of MDMA required. And there were no significant adverse events observed. Keep in mind as well that these were patients who on average were 19 years post PTSD diagnosis. So very advanced and long-standing PTSD. And the fact that this many were able to obtain sustained remission was quite astounding. The FDA granted MDMA with breakthrough therapy designation in 2017 for PTSD based on the results of this trial. MAPS has gone on to complete two phase three trials, MAP1 and MAP2. MAP1 enrolled 90 patients with severe PTSD, including those with common comorbidities such as dissociation, depression, a history of alcohol and substance use disorders, and childhood trauma, and a median duration of 14 years since PTSD diagnosis. MAP2 enrolled patients with moderate to severe PTSD and a greater proportion of minorities compared to the previous studies. And again, the evidence has been strong to suggest that MDMA is effective in PTSD when combined with therapy. 88% of patients in MAP2 had statistically significant improvement in symptoms of PTSD according to the CAPS-5 scale, and 67% had symptom remission. In MAP1, 67% no longer met criteria for PTSD at the end of the 18-week primary endpoint. MDMA was also effective in an exploratory endpoint analysis in the reduction of depression symptoms from baseline to study termination with a mean reduction of about nine points on the Beck depression inventory scale. There was some evidence prior to the MAP1 trial that Patients with a previous history of SSRI treatment do not respond robustly to therapy with MDMA. This was not backed up by the trial results as 65% of patients in the trial had a lifetime history of SSRI use, and there was no obvious effect of previous SSRI use on therapeutic efficacy, nor did years since PTSD diagnosis or patient age at onset have any impact in the efficacy of MDMA. The evidence has been strong enough that Australia recently became the first country to officially legalize MDMA for therapeutic use when used for PTSD treatment. 
and the US FDA is expected to can uh, expected to do so within the coming year. So Chris, how does MDMA work exactly? The basic pharmacology is fairly well understood at this point. MDMA increases the release of monoamines known as dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, similar to the effects observed with methamphetamine or other stimulants. Indeed, the word methamphetamine is in the drug name, so that incorporates one significant part of the structure, but it has an additional side chain similar in structure to mescaline, so it is a bit of a non-classic psychedelic where only the R isomer is believed to have hallucinogenic properties, and the S isomer has psychostimulant and empathogen effects, which enhances feelings of emotional bonding. Activity at the serotonin 1A receptor and serotonin 1B receptor um, alleviates feelings of depression and anxiety, reduces amygdala fear response, and increases levels of self-confidence. Reducing the fear response is the critical factor in motivating engagement in therapy and leading to fear extinction, but MDMA also functions as an empathogen or enactogen, meaning that it has the beneficial effect of increasing empathy and emotional connection, enabling patients to better engage with clinicians and participate in their treatment. The relaxation effect triggered by MDMA may also be linked to its effects on the alpha-2 receptors and by its ability to increase the release of oxytocin or the love hormone. Like most medications considered to be psychedelics, the importance of set and setting should be emphasized to ensure an optimal response to treatment. It will in fact be somewhat unusual in FDA approval um, as MDMA will only be approved in combo with therapy. So as a pharmacist, I guess how this is going to be distributed might be interesting. Uh, will you get it from a pharmacy or directly from a nurse in the clinic? Probably the latter, but uh, we'll see what happens in the future. It's common to use a male and female pair to lead therapy sessions, and therapists encourage patients to go with the experience while creating a sense of safety and communicating trust in the patient's ability to explore their issues. Eye shades are often worn, and the use of uh, music is played through headphones to create an immersive experience. And patients also have their blood pressure and body temperature monitored during treatment, as MDMA may increase both factors. Jaw tightness is one side effect noted uh, in clinical trials, as well as a potential for brief delirium and panic attacks. Again, that's kind of why patients need to be monitored during the time they're using it, at least one of the reasons. The safety data, however, for MAPS-1 showed no incidence of serious adverse events with MDMA. One respondent had a depressed mood during their MDMA session, and MDMA was not continued. Suicidal ideation, again, these were people with advanced PTSD. So... 37% of patients in the MDMA group had suicidal ideation at baseline, but there were only six cases after MDMA was administered and none occurred after the third session. No significant decline in suicidal ideation was observed in the placebo group at all. Um, MDMA was not shown to increase the risk of cardiovascular conditions. Uh, it may possibly even have a superior safety profile to SSRIs, which are known to have an increased risk of causing something called QT prolongation, which can lead to cardiac arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. The other main side effects uh, kind of touched on already were jaw and muscle tightness, hyperhidrosis or excessive sweating, and two patients had a temporary increase in body temperature. 
the full safety and efficacy data is not yet available for MAPS 2, um, but we can update that when it does become available. Preparation for each MDMA session is critical to success and is completed both before and after the session as patients integrate what they learn during their session um, post-session and it helps them to go about their daily lives. In MAPS 1, participants were required to engage in 90-minute preparatory sessions with a two-person therapist team uh, before each of the experimental sessions. They then had three 90-minute integration sessions after each MDMA regimen, one the day after the experimental session and the other two spaced three to four weeks apart. Once uh, MDMA is administered, it does start to rise in the bloodstream within 30 minutes, reaches its maximal concentration at one and a half to three hours post-ingestion, and lasts four to six hours in the body, although we've seen that serotonin levels don't return to baseline until 24 to 48 hours after using MDMA. Since we are pharmacists, I have to spend a little time talking about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenomics of MDMA. There are some pharmacogenomic considerations with MDMA. Two of the major enzymes that break it down are COMT and CYP2D6. 25% of the population has lower expression of CYP2D6, while 7-10% to have lower COMT metabolism. Toxicologic data does not yet support that poor metabolizers have higher risks of toxicity with MDMA, but in theory those with COMT polymorphisms may have a higher risk of hyponatremia, a low blood sodium, and higher blood pressure since it can lead to higher rate of HMMA, which releases vasopressin. Drug interactions with MDMA are still being studied. It appears that alcohol increases levels by 13%, although MDMA itself decreases alcohol levels by 9 to 15%. CYP2D6 inhibitors, like paroxetine, may increase MDMA levels around 30%. More data is needed to determine how best the best dose of SSRI and other inhibitors around the use of MDMA, but as a precaution, uh, they can be withheld up to a few days before the use of MDMA. This would also help to reduce the risk of serotonin syndrome with MDMA. As we know, it is a serotonergic drug, and a washout period of antidepressants was actually part of the MAP study protocol in the MAP-1 and MAP-2 trials. MDMA actually inhibits its own metabolism to some extent due to the inhibition of CYP2D6. Long-term use may cause neurotoxicity, but the mechanism is unclear, maybe due to free radical formation or serotonin effects. But as we mentioned, we are talking about use in two to three sessions in these clinical trials, showing a prolonged effect in extinguishing PTSD pathology so patients will hopefully not require long-term use at all. So MDMA, we think, represents a real breakthrough in ability to met an unmet need in clinical practice due to its ability to promote fear extinction and cause PTSD remission, even in those with resistive PTSD. Stats show that the incidence of treatment-resistant PTSD is high as 33%, um, and 67% of the population has PTSD, a number higher among veterans, maybe as much as 20% of veterans have PTSD, depending on what sources you use. So a lot of people with resistant PTSD that haven't responded to other therapies, MDMA has been effective for them in clinical trials. That is why it's kind of gained this breakthrough therapy designation and on the track for FDA approval. 
Ben Sassa, of course, a doctor of psychiatry and a clinical research fellow at the Imperial College in London, has been engaged in MDMA research for quite some time. He stated that MDMA has the potential to be the antibiotic of psychiatry. I'm going to link uh, his speech in a TED Talk down at the bottom in the reference section for you to review. Um, but you know, his point is that in a way that we didn't know how to treat infectious disease prior to penicillin, because uh, we didn't know how to get to the root of what was causing the patient's symptoms, we haven't been able to cure PTSD because the only therapies we've been using have been treating symptoms and hopefully improve quality of life, but they're not putting the disease in remission. MDMA has a potential to get to that root cause and put it in remission and not require people to have lifelong therapy, which is generally required when they're on SSRIs or antipsychotics, another drug. We're talking about three treatments potentially is it. Um, MDMA kind of opens a window of tolerance in which participants are able to revisit and process traumatic content without becoming overwhelmed or encumbered by hyperarousal and disassociative symptoms. MDMA-assisted therapy helps facilitate recall of negative or threatening memories with uh, greater self-compassion and less PTSD-related shame and anger. It even seemed to be equally effective for the disassociative subtype of PTSD, which has been considered more difficult to treat with the current standard of care. There's still a lot we need to learn and know about this drug, but it is an area and a uh, drug to watch closely over the next few months. Low-dose MDMA, MDMA is also being evaluated by MAPS for fibromyalgia and for chronic pain. This deserves its own discussion that we're going to talk about in a future podcast. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in today. That's all we have. And be sure to hang around for our next podcast. This will be on LSD. The discovery of LSD and its clinical uses today might end up being a two-parter depending on how much content there is to cover. But please tune in next time. Check the links and the references if you want to see any of the information discussed in this podcast for yourself. If you like this, hit subscribe button to follow for regular updates. This podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances.